Good morning, students. It's good to be with you again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find them. We're going to be all over the place this morning, and uh, we'll probably be like that many weeks this semester. Today begins our uh, semester-long study on the doctrine of the church. Now, the word for that is called ecclesiology, right? Uh, we think about uh, what is the church? What is the role of the church? What does the church do? All of that falls under uh, the doctrine of the church known as ecclesiology. So that's what we're going to be studying every Sunday uh, in the fall semester. We want to get a, a full-orbed view of the church by looking at Scripture and looking at history, looking at uh, church fathers and, and theologians and pastors, those who have thought really long and hard about what does it mean to be a part of the church. So why should we study the church? You may be thinking, you know, we usually uh, go straight through books of the Bible and we study verse by verse, and, and that's really, really helpful, and that's called expository preaching, and we, we love that here at Lakeview. I, I teach most of the time that way. I know Brother Al teaches most of the time that way. So, so why are we taking uh, time this fall semester to study a topic like the church? Well, I think knowing about the church is really, really important for a few reasons. First, when you were united to Christ by faith, if you were with us this summer and uh, studied through the book of Galatians with us. You know that we have union with Christ through faith. When that happened, you became a member of the body of Christ. Right? You became a member of his body. So in a sense, you became a member of the church when you became a Christian. So if you're a Christian, the, nat the natural expectation is that you would exercise this new life in Christ by being a part of a local body of believers. That would be just the normal expectation for Christians is that they would join and be a part of a local church. So not all of us have been called to pastoral ministry, right? Not all of us have been called to be pastors or ministers. And, and not all of us have uh, been called to, to missions, although I hope and pray that many of you are called to either uh, ministry or missions in some capacity. But what I do know is that if you're a Christian, you have been called to the local church. You've been called to be a part of this family of faith. So understanding the nature of the church and our role in it as Christians is then vital to the Christian life. If you want to know how to live out your life as a Christian, well, knowing what the church is and how to be a part of a church is, is really, really important. One day, maybe it's a second, a second reason why we should study the church now, uh, one day, there's a good chance that you're going to move from this place. You're not going to live in Auburn or Opelika or the surrounding area anymore. You're going to uh, grow older and get a job or maybe go off to school or maybe get married. For whatever reason, you may leave this place and Lakeview Baptist Church would no longer be your church home. So the questions then would be, what do you look for in a church? How do you know that a church is biblically sound? How do you know that a church is really uh, doing what the Bible says a church ought to be doing. So studying the church and studying the topic of ecclesiology helps you and me clarify our convictions about how it is that we ought to serve the Lord among a community of faith. So when you go from this place, we want to give you the tools to know what to look for. Finally, thinking about reasons that we, we should study the church, how you grow as a believer so how you grow in holiness and Christ-likeness as a Christian is primarily taking place within the context of the rhythms and the ministries of the local church. So a church father hundreds and hundreds of years ago named Cyprian said, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church 
for his mother. Now, he's obviously not saying that the church is on some kind of level importance to your faith as a Christian than God himself. But what he is saying is, is that the church ought to be this source of nourishment and guidance and care for a Christian. And if you're not connected to the local church, then you're being starved, you're being deprived, you're not being cared for as a follower of Jesus. So we're going to study the church. We're going to study ecclesiology this fall. We're going to be all over the Bible, seeing from the Old and New Testaments what God's Word has to say about the people of God. Today, our focus is going to be on biblical images of the church. So as we look through Scripture, when the Bible talks about the church, what kind of pictures or images does it give to us to help us understand what the church really is? We're going to see today that the church is well attested in Scripture. It's not something that we've made up. And these images are going to help us clarify our own views on how important the church really is. So we're going to look at four images this morning from all throughout the Bible. Two of those images will begin in the Old Testament and then find their fulfillment in the New. And two of those images will be uh, located squarely in the New Testament. We need to see as we make that connection between the Old and New Testament that God has one story, he has one big idea about the people of God, and he is unchanging in how that unfolds throughout history. And yet, there is something new that happens in the New Testament, right? There's something, there's something that shifts, there's something that changes as far as the church is concerned. So we're going to see that this morning. So if you're taking notes, the first image I want us to think about is the idea of the church being the people of God, the people of God. And we find this all the way back in Genesis 17, right? So way back in Genesis 17, God makes a promise to Abraham. And we read and learned all about Abraham and his covenant with God uh, when we went through Galatians. But in Genesis 17, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be their God. And then last spring, when we went through the book of Exodus, we saw that God redeemed his people Israel and gave them his law to follow as his redeemed people. Although they were sinful and rebellious from the start, God was going to remain faithful to his promise to Abraham and preserve this people as his own people, the people of God. That brings us to the first text I want us all to look at. So if you have your Bibles, find Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. So if you open up your Bible, you'll probably be in the Psalms or you'll be in Isaiah. And Jeremiah is the very next book after Isaiah. So Jeremiah 31, and we're going to start in verse 31. Now, while you're turning there, um, we need to see that, that, remember from our time in the book of Galatians, God makes a promise to Abraham, this, this covenant, and this is the promise that those by faith would come to be a part of his people. Well, then Moses receives a covenant, right? This, this Mosaic covenant about following the law to be blessed. And if you disobey the law, you'll be cursed. And all of us have fallen under the curse of God because all of us have sinned, right? So this, this covenant, while good and godly and helpful to reveal our sin, it is a covenant that we cannot keep, right? The Mosaic covenant only condemns us. It does not save us. So look at Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. This is, what, uh, this is what God's word says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All right, before we go any further, let's pray. God in heaven, we, we ask that as we study uh, the idea of the church in scripture, would you open our eyes to these beautiful pictures and images that you've written down for us and inspired in your word. Help us to be transformed in our own thinking and understanding about what the church really is. Help us, God, to know that it's more than a, a building. It's more than a club. It's more than just an organization. No, it's a, it's a family of believers that have been brought into your kingdom. It's the people of God. And as we'll see in all these other images, Lord, you have great affection for your church. So God, help us to understand these truths today and apply them in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we just read in Jeremiah 31 that God is promising a new and better covenant than that was set up under Moses. So if you remember, we, we learned about this in Galatians. This new covenant is when Jesus Christ comes and, and offers salvation to all who would repent and believe. This is the new covenant. And now, if you believe in Jesus, if you repent of your sins, now you are a part of the people of God. So when you become a Christian, you become a part of the people of God. You become a part of the church. You become the true Israel, as Paul says in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. Now, this isn't, kind of, this isn't a kind of replacement theology, and you may not know that term, but some would say that replacement theology is this idea that there were the Jews, Israel, this nation that God had set up, and now they've been kind of done away with completely. God has no room for them anymore, and now the church is the thing that God is concerned with. We're not saying that the church has replaced Israel in God's story. Think of it more as fulfillment. Think of Israel as scaffolding. So Israel was this, when you build a building, right, you create scaffolding to where the workers can move around and actually complete the building project of whatever it is that they're building. So think of Israel as scaffolding. They were the, the framework of what God was doing all along. And now that Christ has come, now that we can have faith in him to save us from our sins, now that the people on that scaffolding can be brought into that building that was created, right? So it's the fulfillment of what God was doing all along, not a replacement. Now in the new covenant by faith, any and all people can become the people of God, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. So if you're thinking about, okay, well, the church didn't really exist in the Old Testament, something that exists in the New Testament, and yet there is a, a people of God in the Old Testament. How do we understand all of these things and put them all together? Uh, a professor of mine, John Hammett, said it like this. I think it's really, really helpful. He says, my analogy is that the conception of the church occurred with the call of Abraham. The entire period of the Old Testament following the call of Abraham is the gestation or the growth. The period of Jesus's earthly ministry is the time of labor with the birth of the church occurring on the day of Pentecost. And we'll get to the day of Pentecost later, but I think that's just a really helpful picture for us to see how all of these things are really closely connected. Now listen to Peter. 
If we flip over to the New Testament, as we think about being the, the people of God, Peter tells his, uh, his audience in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. You don't have to turn there. You just listen to me in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2. He says, But you, that is the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We as the church are a people for God's own possession. We are the people of God. And now that we are all the people of God, we are now all priests through the work of Christ. We have direct access as the people of God to our King. So the church is the people of God. It's the fulfillment from this picture that we've seen in Genesis and Exodus and Jeremiah 31. God is our God and we are his people. But the church is so much more than that. We're more than just the people of God. In the next image, we're going to begin to see how the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, influences our understanding of the church. So if the first point, the first image was the people of God, the second image that we're going to see this morning is that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we go all the way back to Genesis 1 to see this begin to unfold. You know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But right after that, just a couple of verses later, in verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And this is what we need to see. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then, we won't read it, but in Genesis 1 and 2, we know the story of creation takes place. And we learn that Adam and Eve were made in God's image, and they were placed in a garden in a location called Eden. And God's presence dwelled with Adam and Eve in that garden. The Garden of Eden is the place where God's presence dwelled with mankind. It was a wonderful place. It was a place without sin, a place without death, a place without sickness or pain. Then Genesis 3 happened, right? And after the fall, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in Eden. They were removed from God's covenantal presence. And mankind was left to be under the curse of sin. So the presence that, that we got to enjoy of, of God dwelling with us was lost. Well, you just go to the next book. We studied that this spring in the book of Exodus, we learned about the tabernacle. God delivers his people, Israel, out of slavery from Egypt and uh, gives to Moses the plans to build the tabernacle. It's going to be this, this place where God's presence would be allowed to dwell among a sinful people. Now, I mean, you remember for chapters and chapters and chapters, Moses gives time to talking about how precise these things ought to be. Things like the altar of incense or the, the bowls or the, the showbread, the table for the showbread or the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, the the uh, garments for the priests. I mean, so much detail goes into this because it was set apart. It was holy to the Lord. So the tabernacle was created, a place where God's presence could once again dwell among sinful people. 
You keep going into the, the books of Samuel and Chronicles, and we see that in the time of David, but specifically in his son Solomon, Israel built a permanent structure. So no longer was the tabernacle to be used for the sacrifices and for worship, this thing that was basically a giant tent. No, Solomon built a permanent structure, the, the temple, as the place for God's presence to dwell. It was also where sacrifices were made as worship. It was where God's presence rested in a unique way among his people. It was a place where the people of God worshipped their God. Now fast forward to the Gospels. We go to Matthew 16, and you read about Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Right? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And in Matthew 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you because man didn't reveal that to you, but my father in heaven revealed it to you. And notice what he says. He says, and I call you Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I think Jesus is talking about not just Peter the man, but also his confession as the apostle, that that's what he means by building his church. That's the rock that the church is going to be built on. But, but don't miss this. Jesus just told Peter that the church is a building, right? The church is a structure. The church should be understood as something that will be built. On this rock, I will build my church. Now we get to the development of this beautiful truth. As Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus, we have received the promised Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in us, right? So as Christians, God now dwells in us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the, the glory of the new covenant. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and there's a lot going on in the church in Corinth. But one of the things he says in verse uh, 9 of chapter 3, is he, Paul tells the church in Corinth, for we are God's fellow workers. You, that is the church, are God's field, God's building. So Paul is continuing this language of saying the church should be understood as a building, a place where things happen and where people dwell. Paul calls the church in Corinth God's building. Then flip down just a couple of verses to verse 16. Notice what Paul says here. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, what you need to know is that in those two verses, all of the you's, right? For you are God's temple. Do you not know? They're all plural. Paul isn't speaking to an individual person. He's basically saying, if he was using Alabama language, he was saying, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Y'all are this building. All of you are the temple of God. You all are the place where God's spirit dwells. Now think about the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. We studied it this past spring. Or, or think about the, the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. In chapter 7, in both of those places, the tabernacle and the temple, when they were dedicated to the Lord, something amazing happened. The glory of the Lord fell from heaven and filled those places up. So we see 
things like fire and wind and smoke and loud noises, light coming out. So much so that in 2 Chronicles uh, and in Exodus 40, the priests were unable to do any kind of priestly work because the glory of God was so thick in that place. So the Lord filled those places, wind, cloud, fire. It was unavoidable. It was, it was impossible to miss. Now look at Acts chapter 2. When we're thinking about the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the church is now the place where God dwells. Just like the tabernacle and the temple, look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, there it is, the day of Pentecost, just a couple of weeks after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. That's the followers of Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, the temple in 2 Corinthians 5, I mean 2 Chronicles 5 and 7, and now the people, the Christians, the followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, God's presence and his glory fills these places to let them know that God's presence is here. Something like tongues of fire now rest on believers as the Holy Spirit filled them. And now the church is the place where God's Spirit dwells and where sacrifices of worship are made. You don't have to turn there, but just remember, it's a, it's a verse that many of us have heard before. Romans 12 Verse one, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is picking up on the same idea that you are now the temple. Your body is now the place that you can offer worship to God because his presence is in you, not just individually, but, but corporately as this temple of the Holy Spirit. When the church gathers together as the people of God, we create a place for the presence of God to uniquely dwell. So listen to 1 Peter. We were already there just a little while ago, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Peter says, You yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see what Peter is saying? He's saying, yes, the spirit dwells within you as an individual, but also you are like a living stone. You are like a, a stone that's alive. And when all of these stones gather together, they make up this spiritual house. It's a place where worship can happen. It's a place where God's presence can dwell among his people. What a beautiful picture. And what a, what a reminder that you and I need each other to, to offer our lives faithfully to Jesus, to offer our lives faithfully to God because we need each other to build up this spiritual house. We are the temple, both individually and corporately, of the Holy Spirit of God. 
He dwells within us one by one, and he dwells among us as the people of God, as his temple. Well, those are the two Old Testament ideas that find their fulfillment in the New Testament. The people of God, this kind of covenantal idea, and the temple of the Holy Spirit, this place where God dwells, where worship is given. We now move on to two more images, and they're New Testament images. What I hope you see is that something amazing happened when the Lord sent his spirit. That day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 changed everything in a very real way. There was a shift that happened because now the risen Christ invites all those who believe to be united to him by faith in ways that were true but not previously revealed, right? We know that Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, but Abraham had no idea how God would fulfill these promises as he's done. So the third image that we're going to see this morning is that the church is now the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. We now make up the body of Christ as members. That's the language that Paul uses. And that word member is not like members in a club or members on a team, but think of it more like parts of a whole. So if you've taken biology, you know that an organism is made up of cells. In the same way, we make up the body of Christ like cells do. When we think about the church and how the Bible describes the church, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you probably had this picture in mind First, I mean, we use that language all the time, right? That we are the body of Christ, that we're a part of the body, that we want to meet with the body. That this, this language of the body of Christ is very common for us. And it seems to be common throughout the Christian life. It seems to be common throughout different churches and different denominations. It's interesting then that Paul only uses this kind of language in four of his letters, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians. And he's the only one that uses the language of members and the body of Christ. But we think it's super important. that it, Obviously, it's been revealed by God that we would understand the church as the body of Christ. So we should recognize in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, the emphasis is on the body of Christ that is visibly expressed in a local church. So when you think about the local church, like Lakeview Baptist Church, it makes sense that we would say we are members of a body. We're all parts, and when we gather together, we make a whole, right? So that, that individual, uh, local, visible church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul is writing about the Lord's Supper. He's giving the church instructions about how to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And back in those days, often what would happen in the Lord's Supper is that there would be one large loaf of bread that would be broken and spread out among the members of that church, right? So one loaf of bread. And Paul writes that the Lord's Supper is a picture of unity that should exist within the body of Christ. So look at verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So Paul is saying, this should be a, this should be a reminder to you when we take the Lord's Supper, 
that we are a part of one body. We are each uh, all separate. We are many, but together we are one body. Now, we obviously lose this image, right? It's been a few months that we've not been able to take the Lord's Supper. And when we do take the Lord's Supper at Lakeview, you know that we usually use those little little crackers, those little wafers. And so we miss that imagery, right? We don't have one giant loaf of bread to hand out to a thousand people. That would be uh, logistically impossible, right? Um, But this is what the scriptures tell us, that the church originally would have seen this image of one loaf of bread being broken among the members of this body. We are members of the body of Christ. And because that's true, like any healthy body, there should be unity among us. We should all come to agreement. There should be peace among us. That unity, however, is not uniformity, right? So uniformity would be like a clone. This person is exactly like this person who's exactly like this person. That's uniformity. Think of the the idea of a uniform. Everybody's doing the exact same thing. Unity is a little bit different. There's more freedom and more diversity that exists, that we can have different backgrounds and different perspectives and different understandings of certain things, but all can be on the same page and in agreement on what matters most. If we were all members of a physical body, if it was uniformity, it would just not do if we were all noses or all feet or all eyes. It wouldn't be healthy. It wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't be good. So there exists diversity within the body that complements and serves one another. So when my foot is injured, my hands will go and grab it, right? Or if there's something in my eye, I will be able to wipe it away. It's the same, the same idea. Was, we're members of the body of Christ. There is a unity, but there is also a diversity. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Paul picks up this idea of the body again. Remember, 1 Corinthians and Romans, he's talking about local churches. Look at Romans 12, 4. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So Paul is saying, look, God in his providence has gathered you all together as his people to be members of the body of Christ. And he's gifted you in a different way that he's gifted you, in a different different way that he's gifted you, in a different way that he's gifted me. But that diversity exists so that we might serve one another and love one another and grow in increased health and maturity as the body. So, If we are members of the same body, if you are a part of the body and I'm a part of the body, it should hurt when we leave. I mean, think about it. If my finger was severed from my hand and tossed away or left to go somewhere else, that would bring the body pain. It would bring the body pain. So we're going to devote in a couple of weeks a whole Sunday to the concept of covenant membership, what it means to really gather with God's people intentionally as a member. But for now, listen to that professor, John Hammett, on this idea. Church members are those vitally connected to other members of the body, as the physical members are vitally connected 
to that physical body. So you and I should enjoy a kind of unity and intimacy and investment and commitment to one another as members of the same body. That's an intentional act of commitment. You and I don't just kind of walk into that without much care. That's something that we have to intentionally do. Hammett continues, any so-called church members who can leave their churches without feeling the pain of being severed were never members in the biblical sense at all. Biblical church membership is a serious commitment. Students, some of us are barely connected to the life of this body. Not just in the youth. I mean, throughout all of the ages, there are plenty of us who would say that we are members, that we've signed that covenant, that we've been baptized as believers, that this is our church home, that this is the body of Christ that we belong to. And yet we are barely hanging on. And we wonder, we wonder why spiritually we may feel dry. We wonder why it feels like people aren't caring for us. We have to ask ourselves the question, am I investing myself as a member of this body? Have I committed to be a part of this church like a member of a physical body commits? Students, we are committed to Jesus. He is the head of the body and therefore we are all committed to one another. So if Romans and 1 Corinthians is talking about local churches, then Ephesians and Colossians help us to see that being a part of the body of Christ isn't just about local churches, but about the universal church throughout time and space, all believers who would call Jesus their Savior and Lord. So find Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Colossians 1, 18. This is what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus, our Redeemer, our Messiah, the one who is Uh, who has the fullness of God in him because he is God, is the head of the body, which is the church. Not just a local church, not just the church in Colossae. He is the head of the universal church. That means that every believer in history, through their union with Christ by faith, is now under the lordship and leadership of Jesus and a part of his body, right? Your hand does not get to decide what your hand wants to do. What decides? Your head, right? You decide what your body does. In the same way, Jesus as the head of the body of Christ gets to decide as the Lord over the body. It means that Christ now has the authority in our lives over everything else. So all of the things that we enjoy doing, all of the things that we have in our life going on, all of our own desires and passions, they are secondary to the Lordship of Christ as he rules over us as the head of the body. Now look just a couple of verses down in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writes, Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body 
nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Christ, who is the head of the body, nourishes and causes to grow that body. Jesus is our source of nourishment and growth. Students, as we follow Christ, we will become more like him. That's been true for every believer throughout history. As they follow Christ, as they obey his word, it doesn't matter what the denomination is. If they've committed themselves to Jesus, as he is revealed in his word, they will, by God's grace, grow in Christ-likeness. That's the good news of being a part of the body of Christ, both individually as a local community of faith, a local church, and universally as the church of Jesus Christ throughout time and space. This should encourage us as we think about friends and neighbors and loved ones who go to churches that may be a little bit different than ours, maybe a different denomination. So maybe you have friends that go to the Presbyterian church down the road or friends that go to the Methodist church down the road. If they're believing the scriptures, if they're really believing God's word, if they are following after Christ as their Savior and Lord, praise God. We may have secondary or tertiary disagreements, but at the end of the day, those primary convictions are the same. Jesus is the same Lord. He's our king and their king. He is our head and their head. So we've seen uh, the people of God as the Old Testament people fulfilled in the church. We've seen the temple of the Holy Spirit, this place where God's presence dwells. And we've just seen that the church is the body of Christ, both visibly in local churches and invisibly in the universal church. So as we think about those images, I hope that you can tell that the church is a big deal. The church is a huge deal in scripture. It's the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. It's the place where the spirit of God uniquely dwells on the earth. It's the body of Christ himself united to him by faith. Finally, this morning, we will see that the church is also the family of God. The church is the family of God. So if you're taking notes, that's our last image this morning, the family of God. The spirit takes up residence in us. The son is united to us as a head to his body and as God's family we can call God Father. He is our Father. J.I. Packer, who was an Anglican theologian, uh, recently went to be with Jesus. He was 93 years old, just a couple of weeks ago. In his most influential book that he wrote out of many, many books that he wrote uh, was the book called Knowing God. It was one of the first books that I read as a uh, Christian in high school, the first book that I really wanted to give my mind over to the things of God, and it changed my life. And, and in, in 21 out of 22 chapters, Packer gives about 10 to 15 pages to talk about different ideas or different aspects of who God is, things like God's glory or his wrath towards sin or his providence over creation. So 21 chapters, about 10 to 15 pages apiece, right? Pretty consistent pace. But one chapter in his book, has double the average space. He gives 30 pages, a good chunk of his book, over to this one chapter that describes the idea of adoption, that we are the sons of God. So Packer wrote this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God 
as his father. Students, this kind of language is really familiar to us. And, and my, my, my hunch is that when we read the Bible, especially the New Testament, we kind of gloss over this use of language because it's so familiar to us. We don't stop and realize what's going on. That more than 250 times in the New Testament, God is called Father. That over and over and over, the, the prominent way that the New Testament writers describe the members of churches is through the use of the word brothers or this idea of siblings, right? We have all been adopted as Christians into the family of God. We now have brothers and sisters around us who can call God father, just like you and me. And that's a kind of bond, the bond of a family that we must recover as a church. So when you think about the people in the youth group who are members of this church, just like you, They are your brother in Christ. They are your sister in Christ. You think about the ways that you interact with and deal with your your, uh, biological, your natural brothers and sisters. It would be even greater than that. Here are three reasons why I think this is important. First, knowing that the church is the family of God helps us to see that the Christian life isn't all about you. The Christian life is not all about you. It's not all about ourselves. When we live in a natural family, we realize that there's give and take, right? You have chores and responsibilities that you have to do while your parents also have jobs and responsibilities that they have to do. And if you do all of those things together, it leads to a healthy, flourishing family. There's give and take. We have both privileges, things that we enjoy, and responsibilities, things that we must do. We don't just consume as a son or a daughter, right? You probably would not last long in your home if you just came home from school, you didn't do anything your parents told you to do, you just ate your dinner and watched TV or played video games, went to bed, and that's all you did, right? There would be a discussion pretty soon, right? Because that's not what a son does. That's not what a daughter does. They're a part of the family. They don't just consume The same ought to be true in the church. So I need you in my life. You need me in your life. We lovingly serve one another as family members. We don't just come to church or click on a link like you did right now only to consume. No, we love and serve and pray and encourage and confront and hold accountable and more. We have privileges and responsibilities that we must all take part in if our family is to grow and be healthy. We are bound to one another by our faith in Jesus and by his adoption. Second, we need to see that the Christian faith isn't summed up in the legal language of justification. That's not all there is to Christianity. Although we wholeheartedly believe in the good news of justification by faith alone, that our sin debt has been absorbed by Jesus. And now as Christians, we stand before God the Father as righteous. That is not all there is. We also, because of his great love, now stand before God and call him our Father. He loves us as a father loves his children. He wants to nurture us by his grace. Christianity isn't merely transactional. It's not just, I give you my sin, you give me some righteousness. Great, that's not all that there is to Christianity. God is personal. 
The Christian faith is relational. God knows us and he wants us to know him. Third, we need to recover this idea of the family of God because we need to see that the church is not optional. The church is not optional. When we're adopted into a family, you don't just deal with dad or you don't just deal with mom. That's not the only person you have contact with. No, when you're adopted into a family, you're brought into a family with mom and dad and brothers and sisters. You now live with the whole family. Adopted children don't just get to decide that they're cutting off their siblings. They don't want anything to do with them. Salvation, as one writer put it, is a community-creating event. So when you become a Christian, you are brought into a community. We're brought into the family of God to live out our new lives as Christians. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you seriously want to grow into a mature, spirit-filled believer, you cannot afford to miss out on being an invested member of a local church. There are so many more images that we could use to describe the church that we get from Scripture. But I hope this morning you see that the Bible cares deeply about the church. It's the chosen people of God, the true offspring of Abraham, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the family of God, the bride, the body of Christ. We also could have said that the church is the bride of Christ. We get that from Ephesians chapter 5. Revelation, the branches in the vine. We see that from the gospel of John, the army of the Lord, the new humanity, right? Old creation, the new creation. All of these images exist in scripture. If you're a Christian, I pray that you would study these, that you would have a, a better understanding of what it means biblically to be the church. And I pray that this morning, as you think about all that we've talked about this morning, I pray that you would have a new sense of gratitude towards the church because God has given you in his grace both a new life in Christ and a new people to call your family. That's a gift that honestly, I think some of us take for granted. And student, if you're listening to this and you're not a believer, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian. Hear me when I say that the offer stands to any who would hear the call of God by placing your faith in, in the risen Christ, by trusting in his death on the cross for sin, you can be adopted into the family of God. You can be brought in to this new family of faith. You can be saved from your sin. You can be the place where the spirit of God dwells. This is the good news of the gospel. So I hope you'll join me in praying that God would help us all to love the church more, that we would really know what Cyprian meant when he called the church his mother, that we would all flourish together as the family of God. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, we are humbled as we think about all of the myriad ways that you have described and depicted the idea of the church. God, we are so thankful that we get to be a part of this assembly, this gathering of believers that is so much more than a group No, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the body of Christ, the family of God. We are the people of God, your possession. God, you love us. You've chosen us. You've drawn us into your presence. And so, Lord, I pray 
that you would help us, help me to have a sense of gratitude and a sense of awe at your gifts towards us in kindness and mercy, that we could be a part of a church, that we could be a part of a spiritual family. Help us to have gratitude. Help us to have love. Help us to invest our lives in the body of Christ for your glory and for our eternal good. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.